0: This is Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care, where we have insightful conversations about parenting for bio, foster, adoptive, or blended families to better understand the experiences we all face as families. Hello, everyone, and a special welcome out there to Utah Foster Families. I'm Deborah Lindner, and here at Utah Foster Care, we are in the midst of celebrating National Foster Care Month. That is a time when we try to show our appreciation to our foster parents, and we also try to educate the public. Uh, to focus their attention on what foster care is, some of the myths about fostering, and and to explain the child welfare system. And our two guests are in a perfect position to do that today. They're an integral part of our foster care community. And now we're going to meet them. But before we do, let me bring in my co-host, Liz Rivera. Hi, Liz. Hi, Deborah. How are you? I am fine. Um, We both, we know both of the people joining us today, but a lot of people out there may not know their names, but they are the key leaders in helping us to find basically the guiding principles for foster care in Utah. Absolutely, and those principles
1: revolve around a very
0: difficult balancing act, which is
1: how to protect children and at the same time preserve families in our state. So our first guest is Diane Moore, and she began her career as a caseworker with the Division of Child and Family Services. Um, She also um, helped to lead the Office of Licensing, and she's now the director of of DCFS. Thank you, Diane, for joining us today.
2: Oh, thank you so much for the invite. It's an honor to be here, Liz and Deborah.
0: Both Diane and our second guest um, have seen their paths cross. In fact, um, Mike Hamblin is the current CEO of Utah Foster Care, and he also started out as a caseworker. Welcome, Mike.
3: Uh, Thanks, Deborah. I'm glad to be here, and thanks, Liz, for, uh, for inviting me to join you today.
0: Thank you both. Well, let's start out the conversation with Diane, who has seen a lot of changes, evolution in child welfare over the years. Diane, where have we been and where are we now, basically? Wow, that's a big question. So yeah,
2: I started 29 years ago as a child protective services worker. And i um, I've had a variety of positions along the way, as, as Liz referenced, but um, this really is the work of transformation. I, I, I feel like it is the work of transformation in the lives of our families that we serve, in the lives of our resource families, in the lives of children, um, and I don't think that any of us remain untouched by that, right? So when I look back 29 years at where I started, what a different system it was. I mean, this was before a big federal lawsuit. And it was just before a lot of things had changed in child welfare. Um, and I think child welfare is really beautiful in that none of us none of us remain unchanged from child welfare. Um, not our stat, not my staff, not any of you. I mean, we could talk all day just about the things we've learned and the th- things we've experienced here. Um, I know it's changed me. It's changed me a lot along the way. And I'm just really grateful to be here um, As I contemplate the changes specific to resource families, um, my first feeling is just a great honor, respect, and gratitude towards the service that they provide. Um, A lot of people don't know this, but along the way, um, I was actually a licensed resource parent. Um, When I started this job, I was 22 years old. I wasn't even a parent myself. I was, like I said, a CPS worker, and um, I had the opportunity to allow this job to impact how I raised my own children. Um, I had the opportunity to adopt a child along the way, um, a child with disabilities. Um, I had the opportunity to be a licensed foster parent. I had the opportunity to have one foster child that was placed with me who was placed for adoption and ultimately that didn't work out. And without going into details, um, that was one of the most difficult situations in my life personally. So I feel like as as the system has journeyed, I have journeyed along with the system and actually along with Mike (laughs) and and Liz even. Um, And that's just been an honor to be part of that journey. I I think that child welfare has moved from, I would describe it as sort of an orientation that is about systems, more into an orientation that is about people is how I would think about it. And I I think what another realization along the way has been this idea that children um, are kept safe, and 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 if we love children, we we do so through the adults in their lives, and that's all the adults in their lives to me. That's their family, that's their relatives, that's their neighbors, that's their teachers, and of course that is you know the foster family or resource family that they are living with. Um, to me, it's about supporting all those adults so that we keep that focus on children and that focus on safety and. And, but it, but it's evolved in how we do it. So each iteration of child welfare, um, sort of learns from itself and becomes, um, more responsive, um, more oriented to best practices and things like that, particularly in Utah. I think I have seen, um, a move away from congregate care, which I'm really, really grateful for. Um, uh, a move towards family voice and enhanced teaming, which again I am really, really grateful for. I think when all the voices are at the table in a teaming sort of decision-making process, um, they're each acknowledged for being whole and what they offer to the t- to the to the situation and what they offer in the way of solutions. And to me, you know, resource families are absolutely full partners in that process. I've been really glad to move. Um, to, to having them more at the table and to having greater voice. Um, they're the ones taking care of our children 24 seven. Uh, they know things that my workers could never know about the child, about their behaviors. And it's so, so critical that they are there. Um, and the teams have a way of humanizing one another. I think, um, it's really easy to dehumanize, uh, you know, the parent or the foster parent or, or the caseworker or, or whoever, if, if you don't engage with them, if you don't build a relationship with them, if you're not kind of together with the same goal, um, trying to figure out how to create solutions on behalf of a child. So I really have felt like child and family teaming is one of the very best things that ever happened to child welfare. Um, we are right now, actually in the process of piloting enhanced um, teaming that, that that's going to give even more voice to that team process. And it's going to be even more important that every voice is at the table. Um, I would say there's been an evolution in kinship um, that we've realized that for children, when you're a child and you're seeing the system through the eyes of a child, it's really about keeping things as organically similar and familiar to the child as much as possible, but in a safe way. And that's kind of tricky um, because often their home environment has been, what was unsafe, but I love the phrase "remove the threat, not the child." So the focus is on anything that we can keep the same for that child: friends, schools, social connections, smells, tastes. Oh gosh, voices, relationships, people who look like them, people who share their culture, people who share their biology, their history. Um, we've really learned a lot about the ambiguous loss of foster care as it manifests over over the lifespan. I think before. We, we thought, well, as long as they're safe, as long as I've kind of, like we kind of treat the child like it's this bubble around a child, like, oh, look, I've plucked them out from this unsafe situation. And and now I'm just going to keep them in this bubble and keep them safe. Um, and instead, I think it's really about the adults in their lives, all of the adults in their lives. The work of child welfare is the work of, of working with adults. Um, and that's their parents. Like I said, that's that's all the adults. So I think that has been one of the things that has been really different is is there's this acknowledgement that um, that the removal of a child, the intervention of a child welfare system, um, placement in foster care, uh, adoption, you know, all of these come with losses for children and a grief that I don't think we realized when we were a little less trauma informed before. Um, I think it's it's um, it's interesting because for me, I will say, it has never really been about parents' rights to me. Even the idea of children staying home. There was this kind of weird, quirky spot in our history here in Utah after the lawsuit where it seemed like it was sort of this us and them sort of child's rights versus parents' rights. And I just never bought into either side of that in that um, it's, it's really about, it's always about child's rights, I guess. It's always about building services around that child. And in doing so, when you acknowledge that whole child that brings in those parents. And and you realize that the best thing you can do for that child is to help those parents become safe parents, if that makes sense. So that's one of the things that I think we've really seen a difference in is that our focus is very much on how do we help all these adults um, really be in the service of maintaining these child's connections and maintaining this child's safety and creating safety in a team way, I, I think that's the that's the, the thing I've seen the most.
0: And here at Utah Foster Care, I've also noticed um, there is has become an evolution more of an emphasis on uh, foster parents understanding that relationship with the child's family, and that they should be a major part of that. And Liz has been a trainer, Mike has been a foster parent recruiter, and we've we've really emphasized that in all aspects how how have you seen that evolve mike
3: you know deborah it's, it's interesting to see where things started and and where they're at now as and, and i i love this term evolution just because you know as the knowledge base as far as what children and families need continues to grow it changes what we're doing and it has been changing what we've been doing all along I remember when I started years ago. um, I actually started as a as a a caseworker for children in foster care, and then later uh, met Diane when I was doing child protective services. and uh, And that was probably almost thirty years ago. Back when, well, twenty six, whatever year, twenty seven years ago. But um, what was interesting at the time was that when uh, when children were having visits with parents, we the foster parents would come in the back door. Uh, the child's parents would come in the front door. They would never see each other. There was never any connection. And and slowly, um, it was actually foster parents that fought that initially. I remember one foster parent telling me, you know, I want to meet the parents. And I asked her about that a little bit. And she said, well, if I'm going to be comfortable with these kids I've been taking care of going home, I want to see the change in them. I want to see, you know, the their evolution i want to see their growth and know that this child's going to be safe and this was a i mean this was a foster parent that took a very proactive role in saying i want to meet the parents i want to help the parents i want to put them at ease and and it it was kind of and I said, it was driven by the families themselves the foster families themselves initially and it was always interesting to me to see i mean that was my first experience with that was watching this particular foster parent interact with the biological parents and just kind of, you know, being able to set them at ease and say, I'm here for you. I'm here to take care of your child temporarily. Um, whatever help you need to get yourself ready for them to get back. And and the whole, her whole thought process was, I, I want these kids to go home to a safe home and whatever I need to do to help that. In fact, I remember her coming to my office one day and telling me, you know, these two kids in my home, they need to see their mom more often. And I told her, well, I've I've got a caseload of 18 kids. I don't have time to do more supervised visits. I can't do that. And she said, well, why can't I? And so she started doing visits twice a week w- with the mom and the kids in the in the kids' home. But for me, I think that's been the biggest transition is just kind of recognizing, I, I was in a meeting and I don't, I don't remember when, it, when or where it was, but the whole concept of, what is in the best interest of the child came up, you know, and our, you know, our thought process, as far as what is in the best interest of the child, what we thought was was in the best interest of the child 20 years ago, and what we believe is in the best interest of the child today have changed over time. That's part of that whole evolution that we're talking about, and a lot of it ties into the trauma-based knowledge that Diane mentioned. Um, but I, for me, it just it all ties into that, just that recognition of uh, knowing that, you know, at this point, when we're meeting with new families looking at becoming foster parents, we kind of tell them the goal is reunification. And if you're caring for a child that has a goal of going home, um, then you just need to anticipate that means working with the parent. There's going to be interaction. There's going to be conversation. There's going to be the child and family team meetings and teaming that's going on all working together towards that goal, those aren't, those, can't, those aren't goals that can be achieved independent of each other, right? It, it all has to be done as part of a team. And I think for me, that's the biggest transition, Deborah. That's kind of my long roundabout answer, but we went from coming in separate doors and never seeing each other to recognizing that we all need each other to be successful. For the case to be successful, whatever that success looks like, we all have to work together and be part of the same team. And I, I think so much of it ties into what Diane mentioned that when we see each other face-to-face, when we get to know each other, when we can have those conversations, how we, how we see each other, how we view each other, um, all of that changes, right? All of that changes. We're able to see each other um, for who we are as individuals with our own issues for sure, but also with our own strengths. Um, and hopes and dreams and everything else. And we can start to approach each other from that place of, you know, seeing the humanness in each other and supporting each other in that.
1: Absolutely. I think one of my favorite things that happens is when a foster parent says to me, I expected to fall in love with the kids. I didn't expect to fall in love with their family. And I love that. And and we see probably, I think, uh, almost on a weekly basis, the Facebook groups Um, many of the regions have uh, resource closets for the, the families to get clothes and that for the kids. But probably on a weekly basis, I see a foster parent who will post on the Facebook group um, hey, these kids just went back to their mom and she needs some whatever. And is there anything in the closet that would help her? And every single time, every single time um, someone says, absolutely, let's get her there and let's make an appointment and help her find what she needs. And so this, this what Mike was just talking about is just, it's, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life is to see those families come together uh, on behalf of those kids.
2: And, and when you create those kind of relationships where you're all working together towards that kind of same goal, um, you find that regardless of how it ends, everyone sort of gets there with integrity and compassion. And um, if that ends in a reunification, um, we can honor the sorrow of of that if that was a a foster family that that wanted to adopt that child or initially thought that was the path for them. while still celebrating that this child gets to go back to their roots and and back to their family and and doesn't have to have that intergenerational severed loss of where they came from um and and similarly um when those parents are engaged in a way that i think has real respect for them um we see very different outcomes and you know that's that's one of the things that i would say is a big difference in child welfare is um as we start talking about what does robust reunification really look like? Like, have we put barriers there that don't need to be, be, to be there? This was a system that largely I'm going to assert a little bit was created to sort of default on a pathway to adoption. Historically, I'm talking 15, 20 years ago, that was a default path Um, and And so I'm constantly asking myself and and working with you and and other community members, but how do we create a a foster care system and a child welfare system that the default path is successful reunification? I mean, don't get me wrong, there are cases that should not have reunification and we have things in our law that allow us to not even do reunification in certain cases and we take advantage of that. But when reunification is the goal, it needs to be all in. It needs to really, really be the the goal and every person on that team, including the resource family that needs to be, you know, what we're all focused on the success of it's, it's been a very interesting process to see that evolution. Um, this continuum, it doesn't end at adoption, even if it goes adoption, because these children carry their pasts with them and these children, um, and 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 the adoptive families, you know, I, I am an adoptive parent. I'm an adoptive parent who it didn't turn out as I had planned. Um, I didn't know my child was going to have lifelong disabilities and live with me forever when I adopted her. Um, and there's a grief and a loss to that. And and there's a figuring out this relationship with this child that you didn't um uh come to, come to your family that other way. Do you know what I mean? Like, I remember looking at my daughter and I imagine that lots of, (laughs) I imagine lots of resource families have felt like this on the first day where you kind of have this, oh my gosh, what did I just do moment where you're like, this child is a stranger and I am their parent and I am supposed to take care of them and love them. And of course we love when we nurture, right? We love when we serve, we love when we care. And I just am constantly amazed at the great capacity for love that our foster families have. They are truly, I call them resource families because they are truly resources. I think foster is not as a, I don't know, I know it's the word, but um, to me, resource is like you're contributing so much in the child, in this child's life. You're a resource in so many different ways. And you're you're a resource to the system and to the family and things like that. But it it is a, this is, I, I call it not heartbreaking work, but heart stretching work. Because it's, it it will like I said at the beginning, it will transform you and and bend you and um, I've found that when we yield to it, um, we learn amazing things about ourselves and about those that we serve and about those that we love and and about the families that we work with and and things like that. I hope this work always has compassion and respect. I hope that it um, for everyone for everyone involved. And Mike, you discussed that so beautifully. I think that when you get in a room and and you feel each other's pain, um, I think it's the highest sort of level that we kind of get to as humans interacting. And it's a shame when we don't open ourselves up to that.
1: So Diane, this is a very personal question, but how do you take care of your heart in doing such difficult work. And especially when, I mean, you're the director of DCFS, so it makes it sound like you're so powerful, but the reality is, is that you have very little power to interact and <laughs> in, you know, to actually make decisions or change outcomes of cases. Um, that's really at the court level and, and, and individual level. But, so how do you, how do you maintain, you've been doing this work for 29 years. How do you maintain your, your compassion and your energy um, to continue in this, in this sometimes difficult work?
2: I think that people who are attracted to this work and all of you on this call as well, and probably many that are listening are just really passionate about making the world sort of a better place and really passionate about children and really passionate about, um, you know, creating a a child welfare system that, like I said, when I say has integrity, I mean, it bears scrutiny from all of the players. That's, that's my goal, you know, is that, is that a foster family and, you know, our, our, our our resource families, I gotta tell you, um, they have to deal with our 32% turnover. They're constantly training our workers, they're under-reimbursed, they open themselves exactly up, just like I said, to this sort of feeling and 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 happiness and sadness and just all of these things. And um I, I think that they do it for the right reasons just just like hopefully i do it and hopefully you do it i mean we're here because we believe that we can take whatever the situation is with a person in their lives and maybe with our kindness and maybe with our generosity and maybe with our skill and maybe with our resources we can lift that person in this life so that their future life and this is true whether it's a foster parent a child a parent you know whoever it is that their future life is made better because of the engagement that we had with them. Their future life is made better because of that, um, that interaction and that transformation that has occurred. That That's why I stay, um, that's is, that is what I love and I'm never ever bored with this work and I have so much to learn. Um, I, I think Mike can join me in this and so can Liz because I know you guys best on this call, but you never, it's never boring. It's never, there's always something to fix and there's always something to make better. And there's always something to, to make it more efficient or to make it um, better for the kids or um, just, it, just, there's always something more to do. And so it never gets boring. And that's very, very energizing to
0: me. And it's, there's always something to inspire us too, um, is what I've found. And um we're, we're fortunate that, that Diane has also responded to some questions from foster parents that we will have listed in our resources that are on the website uh, after the podcast. Um, and we'll continue this discussion um, throughout the year um, with questions from foster parents. Um, any final, final thoughts, um, Mike and Diane? that you have for foster parents doing, doing this work out there.
3: No, I, w- I would just reiterate exactly what, um, what Diane has said. It's, it's incredible to me um, what foster families do. I, I remember as a caseworker, I, I, you know, as a young caseworker that was probably 22 years old myself, as Diane mentioned um, and having that aha moment when I considered the foster, the, the, the resource families, I love that term just because, as Dan says, they're more th- so much more than just a parent. Um, but having that aha moment of these these families take the kids in. As a caseworker, you know, I work eight to five and that doesn't mean I didn't ever worry when I went home at night and I, I certainly took phone calls in the evening and on weekends at times, but I had that aha moment of I take phone calls sometimes in the off hours, and they're caring for children all the time in the off hours, and responding to those kids needs all the time in the off hours, whatever those things might be. Um, and, and I guess I would I'd just reiterate that awesome uh, respect and appreciation uh, for the role that foster families play in the child welfare system because it, it would not be a functioning system without them and it would not have the outcomes that it does without them, without children being able, when necessary, when they have to be protected and, and placed outside of their home, for them to be able to still be within a family setting and have that family experience of, a, of, you know, of parents and siblings perhaps, and just, just that family experience makes all the difference in the world. For them to be able to either go on with that family permanently, if it is adoption, but in the case of reunification, as we're hoping, you know, having that family experience to see what if how a family can function and and should function, and to take that home with them as their own family heals and is is better able to play that role, um, it's just it, we wouldn't have the system we have, and we wouldn't have the outcomes we have without the families that we have.
2: I 100% agree. They're amazing, and and I just want to thank them. And again, I, I know it's hard, but I would say we need to lean in to each other. You know, we need to we need to lean in and see each other as whole individuals, both as professionals, with our caseworkers, with our parents, with our resource families, with the child. Um, I really think that when we see that wholeness and we don't marginalize one another in any way. Um, <clears throat> that we honor the complexity of these situations and the complexity of the individuals in these situations. Um, You know, I have an open door and I love to hear foster parents' stories. I find them very humbling, actually. I find them, that they help me be very aware of how much better we need to do as a system. And I'm just grateful for the opportunity to continue building that relationship and, and trying to make this a system that serves everyone better.
0: What a great way to end our conversation today during National Foster Care Month. Thank you, Mike Hamblin, CEO of Utah Foster Care. And thank you, Diane Moore, uh, the director of the Utah Division of Child and Family Services for joining us. And we want to, of course, thank again, all of our foster parents, um, those of you in Blanding, those of you in Logan, all parts of the state. Utah really has a very diverse population of people serving serving children in foster care. And um, we want to thank you again. And for all of those out there, as we say, who have not only fallen in love with the child, but also fallen in love with their families, we want to say thank you. Thanks for listening today. Um, I'm Deborah Lindner. We will join you next time for Fostering Conversations. This has been Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, go to utahfostercare.org. We'll see you next time.